It's time for Talking Michigan Transportation, a podcast devoted to the conversations with people at the forefront of the ongoing mobility revolution. In the state that put the world on wheels, here's your host, MDOT Communications Director, Jeff Cranson. Hi, welcome again to the podcast. Today I'm going to be talking about climate change and what it means to roads and bridges, not just trying to sustain them, but planning ahead for building in what we know is going to be a, a more volatile period and what it means in terms of high water and the toll that that takes on roads and bridges. Because this week, Governor Whitmer is putting a special spotlight on the environment in Michigan and what climate change means and prevention of pollution and really everything that relates to protecting uh, our precious Great Lakes environment. So I'm going to start out with Hugh McDermott, who is my counterpart at the Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy, also known as EGLE, and he's going to give us kind of a high-level view of what's going on with the action team uh, comprised of several agencies that are working on high water issues and Great Lakes levels and the impact that they're having on the environment. And then I'm going to talk with Matt Chenoweth, who is the chief bridge engineer and, and the administrator of the Bureau of Bridges and Structures at MDOT, and he's going to explain what all this means in terms of trying to maintain our, our bridges. So we'll start with you. Sure. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So let's going back to the summit in February that, uh, that you guys convened with several state agencies, but you were obviously in the lead. Um, we know that water levels are some of the highest in more than two decades and that uh, there's really no reason to think that they're, they're going to subside soon. Um, it's taken a toll on, on certainly transportation infrastructure and state parks and inland waterways as well as the Great Lakes. Um, and, you know, just from a global perspective, could you, I mean, money is tight, obviously, for everybody. So what do you think you guys can do, given the resources and what needs to be done? Sure, Jeff. Uh, uh, let me say at the outset, there's there's a limit to what we can do because Mother Nature is uh, pretty much in control of this situation. Um, but we have a certain number of levers that we can pull to help communities, to help homeowners, uh, to help the folks who manage our infrastructure uh, uh, cope with some of these high water levels. Um, and, th- and that was sort of the focus of the summit uh, earlier this year. So some things we can do, we do a lot of education. We work, we provide technical support and outreach to communities and in, uh, in helping them know what's coming, um, how to best deal with some of the, th- the threats that the high water has on their communities and, and on property and potential land lives and in, 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 uh, in, in shoreline areas. Um, and we've also uh, put a lot of effort into expediting our permit process. We. Uh, we uh, give permits out for shoreline work to ensure that it is, uh, first of all, going to work, and second of all, not going to harm neighbors because sometimes some of the uh, uh, barriers and things that people put in on an ad hoc basis can actually have negative rather than positive consequences. Could you um, so, cite, a, cite, yeah. cite a specific for that? I mean, not not name names, but talk about that, that kind yeah. of thing that somebody, uh, you know, a lakefront property owner might do. Sure. Sure. I mean, it's 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 certainly uh, uh, you know for, for a shoreline property owner who is worried about his uh, his home being washed away, his vacation home being washed away, or her vacation home being washed away, it's certainly tempting to pile rocks or um, wood or hay bales, sometimes sandbags in front of those waves to stop them and you know on the surface that makes sense but depending on the wave action the currents and the places that you are in the lake that can actually have more of a negative effect than a positive it can actually lead to more destruction not only on your property but to neighbors 
um, who are on either side of you. Um, so we want to ensure that the, the things that uh, people are putting in the lake to stop these waves or to slow down the uh, the action of the waves is, is not harming the lake, first of all, and not harming adjacent property owners, second of all. Good. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so, you know, people talk about this in terms of it being cyclical and that, you know, we certainly know the Great Lakes have, have uh, risen and, and declined over the years, but um, there seems to be something more going on now. So, you know, talk, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, we're we're at a you know we're at a period this year where a lot of the lakes, a lot of the Great Lakes, were at record high water levels, and and as he pointed out, that's that's a cyclical thing. First and foremost, uh, these these water levels on the Great Lakes tend to rise and fall in roughly 30, 35 year patterns, and we're at the peak right now. Um, so. Um, you know, we had, I think, the uh, uh, one, more than one inch higher than the record levels for Michigan and Huron in the month of August, this past August. And, you know, even absent any other factors, that would be a problem. It would be a problem for shoreline erosion. It would be a problem for roads washing out, as you've seen on Mackin Island and various other places. And it would be a problem for homes that are built close to the shoreline or on a bluff uh, that may be eroding. But on top of that cyclical problem that we have uh, when water levels are at their highs, um, you know, there, there is the, the effect of climate change, which is uh, maybe not the key driving force in the water levels, but it certainly contributes to it. And by that, I mean the water levels are already high. We're seeing more uh, frequent and more intense storms, which tend to chip away at the, at the bluffs and at the shorelines. Um, we're seeing increases in precipitation throughout the Great Lakes Basin. We have recently experienced the, uh, the highest precipitation in one, three, and five-year periods in recorded history in, the, in, in Michigan, and that is increasing uh, lake levels. And we're also seeing generally a decline in ice cover each winter. Um, and, and the ice cover um, that covers the lakes helps to uh, keep precipitate or keep uh, keep the water from evaporating. And when there is an ice on the lakes, uh, you get more water evaporating, which leads to that cyclical cycle. Um, so there are a lot of factors at play. And while climate change isn't the driving factor, it certainly is a multiplying the effect of of the high water issues. You know, anything else you want to talk about that uh, you know that people might not think of in terms of you know, the, the harm to the environment, you know, algae blooms, uh, other problems with fish and plant species, just, just how disruptive this can be, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I, I can ramble on for a little bit. And, and you know, as, 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 uh, as, as you know, uh, the governor's taken some bold action this week uh, with the uh, climate change executive voter and executive directive, which puts Michigan on a path of, of carbon neutrality by 2050, which means that we will not be uh, a net contributor of carbon, which is the key uh, heat-trapping greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. So that's very exciting. And, of course, uh, you know, the... the changing the amount of carbon and greenhouse gases we put in the atmosphere is going to take a long time to see effects. Um, the effects that we're going to see in the next couple decades are already in motion. There's not, not a lot we, that we can do about it. Um, so we have to practice adaptation. We have to uh, educate folks and communities um, to uh, change the way they do infrastructure, to change the way um, your roads at MDOT are built, 
to change the way people think about living on the shoreline. Maybe your home should be back farther than you would like it, and that beautiful view of the lake might be a little farther back uh, to protect your home. Um, and, 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 you know, communities can do things like preparing infrastructure, ensuring that, uh, you know, that if they're in, a, in an area that's prone to flooding, that they take measures to ensure that their electrical, electrical equipment and other sensitive uh, machines are, are up, uh, you know, up above the flood level grade, um, things like that. So there are ways that we can prepare for it. Um, the governor's put, it on, put us on a path to reduce our emissions and eventually uh, uh, be a net zero uh, uh, carbon emitter. Um, but in the short term, uh, we're going to have to prepare for some effects, and, and we're seeing some of those right now. That's good. That's a good summary, Hugh, and uh, sets us up well since you mentioned roads uh, for, for our next guest. Um, so thanks. I appreciate it. As promised, part two today, we're going to be speaking with Matt Chenoweth, who is the chief bridge engineer at MDOT and is the administrator of the Bureau of Bridges and Structures. Um, he has vast experience with all kinds of bridges, but mainly today I want to talk about high water and what uh, the, the ongoing impact is going to be on our bridge structures and their supports, um, especially as we know when water rises, currents tend to increase and rapid currents uh, put more pressure on supports. So. Thanks, Matt, for taking the time to do this. Yeah, thank you very much, Jeff. Thank you for having me. So, you know, I talked earlier with uh, Hugh McDermott at Eagle about the high water action team and that the governor convened. They had a summit back in February. Several state agencies, including MDOT, were involved in that and talking about the volatile climate and, and what it means in terms of protecting waterfront properties and everything from boating and water sports to maintaining roads and bridges. So in your role as uh, not just a, a bridge engineer, but really a very intellectually curious person who studies all kinds of things related to infrastructure. Um, what do you think about the rising waters and, and faster currents? And can you talk about what you've noticed in recent years? Yeah, I mean, I think the data shows us that um, while the overall total amount of rainfall in any given year isn't, isn't going up or down, the the intensity of these storms so they you know is is much higher than it used to be so a storm will come in and it'll drop vast amounts of of, of water in a short period of time and, and what that means is you've got all these various uh, drainage areas right boundaries and as the water drains from that uh, it all eventually gets into the rivers and stream systems that run through the state and then out into the Great Lakes. Um, and so, you know, what we see is when we have these huge rainfall events, uh, water levels rise. Uh, we have a population of bridges uh, that we monitor in these events. We have bridges that are considered either scour critical or scour susceptible uh, that we actually have action plans for that and as this is not just MDOT, these are all the local bridges too. So, you know, all 13,000 bridges in the state, uh, for the ones that are over waterway and the ones that are scour susceptible and scour critical, uh, inspectors know to check uh, if there's a USGS gauge station out there that's measuring water levels and, and flows. We check those and then uh, we have to do site visits and we, we check the footings for stability. There's a whole... Uh, I guess behind the scenes resource allocation uh, amongst bridge inspectors that happens when we have these 
these high water events. So explain the concept of scour because I think to a lot of people that sounds like something you do when you clean your sink. So. Oh well, yeah, actually, it's it's a very similar action. So what scour is? There's a couple of different types of scour uh, that we designed for, but uh, basically what scour is is as the water uh, flows underneath or through a bridge opening. Uh, a lot of times you'll notice that the bridge has um, abutments that will actually narrow the cross-section of the river right at the bridge, or there are piers that are actually in the water that create an obstruction. And what ends up happening is as the water swirls around that, uh, number one, the water, the velocity increases. So the water accelerates as it's going through the bridge opening. And that obstruction causes all these different um all these different actions, uh, there's there's different types of water oscilla- oscillations and vortex shedding and all of this, but what it does is it it picks up the material, so the, the, the riverbed, uh, that is supporting the footing, um, and it erodes it away. And what makes scour so dangerous to a bridge is that if, if enough of the footing uh, is scoured away, if enough of that footing uh, support material is scoured away, uh, you could have a progressive collapse of the bridge. And it's a very difficult thing to inspect for. Uh, it's a difficult phenomenon to inspect for because by a visual inspection, as the current slows down, it deposits sandy, silty materials into the hole that was formed by the higher velocity water. And so by just looking at it, you can't tell. So you've got to get in there and you've got to probe. Uh, we use sonar to bounce, you know, beams back and forth to find scour holes. And so that's why when these events happen, you have to have a, a all hands on deck, hands on approach to go out there and, and do inspections, probe the footings, and uh, take the necessary actions. So these are all things that are going on kind of out of sight. And, you know, we know when water's over a road and, you know, like what's going on up in Alberta and Benzie County right now that uh, a lane has been closed all summer because of high water. So you can see that, you know, you're inconvenienced. What you're talking about are things that are going on literally below the surface and that could have a, a, a tremendous dramatic effect on a structure. Correct. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the motoring public may never know um, all that's happening uh, all that we're doing after a high water event to make sure things are safe. Um, but what they do notice is when something gets closed, it's an inconvenience, but it's closed because we are unsure of the stability until the water levels kind of recede and we can verify that everything's safe. When, when we had the, um, the dam breach up in Edenville and Midland there, uh, the day after, actually that night and then the day after, uh, MDOT closed 23 bridges. We had 23 bridges closed by 5 p.m. the next day. Two bridges, well, one bridge had completely collapsed. Um, one bridge, uh, the approach washed out, and then there were a couple of local bridges that had also um, washed out or were completely underwater. Uh, but there were a whole other population of bridges that uh, just driving by, you know, you wouldn't think anything of it. Yeah, the water's flowing under it. It's flowing very fast. Uh, but they remain closed until we could do a proper scour assessment. Yeah, we had an event <clears throat> up there last week, as you know, just to reopen one of those bridges on M30 in Edenville. And uh, while that only helped out a handful of homeowners because there's another bridge further north that still needs to be reopened, uh, it was pretty pretty incredible, uh, uh, I guess, 
festive event for the families that were happy to have that that connection back. So uh, our crews worked very quickly to do that, which is great. Um, yeah, we were we were fortunate on that one, Jeff, because uh, the one that was reopened last week, um, it survived uh, an event that it was not designed for. Uh, that that much flow coming down uh, and that amount of time at that speed. Um, you can't design for something like that, but it speaks to the robustness of the design. Yes, the approach is washed out, but the bridge itself, the structure, was intact. So we reconstructed the approaches and reopened the bridge. So you know, talk about the median age of bridges in the state and you know how MDOT monitors those bridges and structures during these more frequent and higher-intensity flooding events. Yeah, so um, you know we have bridges in the state that are still... Um, you know, bridges and culverts um, that are that have been in service um, for a hundred years, and we have bridges and culverts that have been in service for a year. So we have a whole vast array of uh, bridge ages and conditions. Um, you know, most of the bridges in the state on the freeway system were built from the late fifties into the mid seventies. Um, but we have this population, this network of bridge, you know, this network network of bridges that all come from different um, different eras of design. We have many bridges that were designed and built before there was, you know, scour, you know, to design against scour and scour countermeasures and stuff like that. And uh, we, we kind of, we race against time to retrofit those as best we can. Uh, but, but the monitoring that we do um, is, is very significant. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, each one of these bridges that would be considered scour susceptible or scour critical has a very specific scour monitoring plan or plan of action when water levels reach a certain height. And, uh, and these plans are very in-depth, even going um, into detail in terms of, you know, who the em- emergency management contact is, if we have to close the bridge, what resources to use, Um so, I mean, that's how we manage our network. We, we design bridges now, um, you know, over waterways to resist scour. So, uh, so we put the foundation. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, since you talk about design and, you know, the transportation planners and engineers, they talk about building for resiliency. Um, I mean, talk about what that means and how it sounds good, you know, in theory, but you know, we all know that Michigan, like a lot of states, is in a chronic transportation funding crisis, and you can't do everything that you'd like to do. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. So these days, um, we we design bridges to resist um, the 200-year flood events and to be stable in the 500-year flood events. And what that means is the foundations have to go very deep. The foundations are very robust. But what it also means is, so there's a cost right there because uh, drilled shaft foundations are, are very deep, very deep, you know, pile-driven foundations. That's that's an expensive venture. Uh, but what we also find we're doing is we're lengthening the bridges uh, to get the abutments and the approaches uh, as far away from you know the high water, uh, the anticipated or the calculated high water as possible. So we're actually finding that an average bridge that's over a waterway right now, uh, when MDOT goes in to replace it, we are actually increasing the length on average by about 30%. And so you take into account the fact that, you know, the average cost of a bridge is, 
anywhere from you know 200 to 250 to 300 dollars a square foot uh, when you're adding 30 percent of the, of the le- to the length of the bridge to get the abutments out of the floodplain or out of the you know 200 year high water elevation um, again it just it means it's a more expensive bridge than what was originally there and what would have been allowed you know 30 years ago so once again you know the great lakes and uh, the water are, are part of what make michigan a beautiful state and a great place to live but it also presents tremendous challenges from a transportation standpoint yeah absolutely and it's not just michigan um if you remember years ago uh, hurricane sandy there uh that hit the new jersey new york coastline there were areas of new you know atlantic city i think and areas of manhattan that for the first time ever were underwater right uh these say these pieces of infrastructure were not built for anything like that i believe the holland tunnel was was flooded you know these are things that just hadn't you know don't normally happen uh that uh over the past you know 10 years or so we've seen these events that cause cause that high water cause that flooding yeah no yeah no matter you know what we want to argue about the fact is that things are more volatile and as you said the the events are much more extreme and much more dangerous so yes that can't be denied so matt thanks for taking time to explain this and uh i'm sure we'll be talking more about all of these things um probably the next time we have a major flooding event and your crews are forced into emergency action on more bridges great always good to talk to you jeff Okay, thanks again for listening to this week's edition of Talking Michigan Transportation. And I want to give a special thanks to Corey Petey, who uh, does the sound engineering for the podcast, and to Sarah Martin uh, of MDOT, who does the show's intro and closing. That's a wrap for this edition of Talking Michigan Transportation. Check out show notes and more on SoundCloud or by subscribing on Apple Podcasts.